0: Hello and welcome to Knowing Nature the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host Victor and in this episode I'm joined by a longtime environmental educator Paul. Hi Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. So in this episode we're going to be talking a little bit about the program that is running at the London Wetland Centre. Could you tell us a little bit about the London Wetland Centre?
1: Sure. Basically, yeah, London Wetland Centre is an urban uh, oasis, basically. It's a, a human-made wetland, artificial wetland, in the centre of London. So it's quite a unique kind of a place. It was originally four reservoirs that were used to serve southwest London with fresh, clean drinking water. When those reservoirs fell out of use, um, basically Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, which is the charity I work for, they acquired the wes- reservoirs. And they were able to convert them into uh, one hundred and five acres of wetland habitat, um, which is quite unusual to find such a large area of wetlands um, so close to the centre of uh, a large major capital city like London. so it's it's quite a quite a unique place.
0: Beautiful site, and I worked there as well for four or five years. Um, as a learning officer, so it's quite a good educational program that runs there at the center. The vast majority of it is um, outdoors and as you'd expect from a, a conservation charity, there's a really heavy conservation focus. So what would you say is the most popular program that the wetland center offers?
1: There is only one answer to that, and you'll you'll already guess what it is having having worked there for a number of years. And yeah, yeah, it's it's pond dipping, so catching animals with a net out of the ponds is by far and away the most popular thing that we run for schools, for families, yeah, pretty much for for anyone.
0: Yeah, because you run um, a version of pond dipping for um, the general public on weekends and holidays, and then there's a more structured version for schools. Would you be able to talk us through those two programs? Maybe let's start with the. the public programme. If someone comes pond dipping uh, at the wetland centre, what can they
1: expect? So with the public programmes, the way they usually run is is that basically it's uh, kind of turn up and pond dip. So mostly it's families, occasionally adults come along as well. We have tried to do specific adult pond dipping programmes, but um, they kind of varied in how popular they were, uh, unfortunately. So mostly we just do family programmes, weekends and during school holidays. So basically you turn up, uh, we give you a net, we explain to you how it works. Um, We want to try and focus on the sort of health and safety aspects, so making sure the children don't ingest the water uh, because of the danger of um, disease transmission, but also making sure they don't do stuff that actually harms the habitat. And then basically it's it's up to them, They, they catch stuff, They try and identify it. We help them identify it. There is a chance sometimes to use microscopes. You can have a closer look at things. And um, then at the end, yeah, generally they leave having, of course, a few creatures and hopefully um, having had fun, but also learned about a few of the things that live inside the ponds. I think it's mostly the sort of surprise that there's so much living under the water is probably the biggest take-home point from pond dipping for general public members.
0: There is quite a free-flow session, and it really does depend on on what the public, um, what their questions are, and what they want to learn about. The setting that we use, because I think when a lot of people think about pond dipping, they think of um, they think of like a, a large natural pond. But but I know at the Wetland Center they've got raised ponds, hmm. and that's where most of the pond dipping happens. Is that right?
1: Yeah, with the general public, because um, we've got these raised ponds which are made from I think they're old railway sleepers or I think they were a Victorian pier or something but basically they're three little pools raised up off the grounds they're at a the perfect height so if you're a child you can reach inside them if you're using a wheelchair you can also still reach inside them which is um a really good plus point and they just use little aquarium nets basically so um not nothing absolutely huge so It's it's very safe and it's very sort of controlled, shall we say. Um, so there's very little danger of falling, falling into the ponds, which is probably quite relieving for some of the family visitors who turn up to it. Can you talk to me a little bit more about the equipment that you use? So the public, they just use regular aquarium nets.
0: They don't use, you know, big fancy um, nets like that. What's the other equipment that you guys use?
1: Um, basically, it's aquarium nets and then white sample trays which are filled with water and then just dotted around the pond. Um, Sometimes bring out little sample pots so they can collect animals and look look at them under the microscope. Um, We also have a set of bespoke pond ID guides. So um, a a thing for identifying the animals that they, they find inside the pond. We did have a little bit of a problem that people liked them so much they started walking off with them because they thought we were giving them <laughs> away. <laughs> but we, got, uh, we got signs as well on the ponds which sort of show you what all the different animals are as well.
0: And I know that at the Wetland Centre they've gone through quite a few different versions of the pond guide. So they used to use the Field Studies Council used to have um, a pond life key, a branching key. Um, there are also any number of pond life ID books, why did you choose to go with um, a bespoke guide?
1: Well, the, the main reason was that the bulk of the children who come and visit are quite young. And the FSC POMS Key is actually designed for GCSE students. <laughs> so it relies on being able to make very small observations and having some understanding already of, of how to classify animals which very young children wouldn't have um, so what we felt was more important was enabling them to identify things by helping them to use the identif- identification skills that they already have so they can build on those rather than expecting them to know what a jointed limb looks like so basically we devised the guide by finding how the children grouped the animals when they observed them, rather than looking at taxonomic groups. So, for example, when children catch uh, pond skaters, the, the surface, surface living bugs, um, they tended to think that they were spiders. So <laughs> we basically grouped together all the things that they thought were spiders into one group. Um, in actual fact, we went for the observation that they're all animals that lived on the surface of the water. Um, so we also put wordy gig beetles in there uh, with the water measures as well. And generally, children have found it a lot easier to use, um, even older children. That's I'm sure GCSE uh, students would probably uh, love using our pond ID guides. But um, yeah, they have to have a bit more rigor. So they get they get the key.
0: Um the big features, the groups that you split them into it's nice that they're really easily observable, so like lived on the surface, as you said, it's long and thin,
1: looks like a beetle looks like a beetle is is another one um looks like a fish was another one because or looks well, in my head they they were sort of grouping things, they're calling everything a tadpole, so they catch a fish and say, well, that's a tadpole, and then we get them to look closer and say, you know well this has got something that tadpoles don't have. And eventually they'd realise it had fins and that it couldn't be a tadpole, it must be a fish. Because there's a lot of things that they are very familiar with, which are analogous to the creatures that they find inside the pond. So while they might find a diving bees and be like, whoa, what's that? If you get them to think about beetles on land, then suddenly they make this connection that actually it's just an underwater version of something they've already seen. It was the same with the hog louse as well, that they'd see this thing crawling on the bottom and think, oh, that's really weird. But then most children will know what a woodlouse is, and then they think, oh, wait a minute, well it's, they're basically the same thing. So um, yeah, it was it was very much a case of using what children can observe and do observe, rather than starting with the science and trying to get them to make observations that they, they might not necessarily uh, make themselves.
0: So what about the school's version, the more structured version of the uh, pond dipping? Could you walk us through what one of those sessions looks
1: like? The, the typical one is the one that we do with, um, tends to be mostly year twos these days. It always used to be year fours, so but I think they've changed the curriculum somewhat. So it's become sort of the year two session of choice. So basically, at the start, we get them thinking about the habitats and what adaptations the animals would need to be able to live in the habitat. Um, And We do that just sort of doing kind of small group work and feeding back. And then we get them pond dipping. So they catch animals out of the pond and then each group gets a pot and they choose one animal they'd like to find out more about. They scoop it up in the pot. And then they take it back and they investigate that animal and they try and identify some of the adaptations they have to, uh, to actually live, it, live underwater. And then at the end, we get the groups to feed back to each other, which can often be the hardest bit. That They'll have made amazing observations and been really good at looking at the creatures and working things out, but they're not so good at actually telling each other stuff, mostly just because they get quite, quite shy. So we use a, um, an inquiry-based philosophy. So we're getting them to be at the centre of their investigation and find out the things that they want to find out and lead the investigation. Although we're quite prescriptive on, on that in comparison with a completely sort of free, free flow, you know, what do you want to find out, find out. We, we kind of set the set task for them, but essentially they have to find out everything rather than us telling them stuff in a more traditional didactic sense.
0: I, I know that the session went through quite a few different versions. Why did the session end up being a bit more prescriptive? Because I think with a lot of other environmental education organisations, when they go through the inquiry-based kind of student-led, it's very student-led, whereas the Wetland Center's session, it, it is more prescriptive. What made you land on that more prescriptive end rather than the the strictly student-led end of the spectrum?
1: I think there were two reasons. Um, The first is that certainly when we first started working in this way, a lot of children weren't used to having to think for themselves almost. They weren't necessarily being given the opportunity to in, in the classroom. So Rather than teach them this whole new skill which takes a long time to learn, we're essentially basically scaffolding for them how to get to that point where they can start making their own observations and their own investigations and come up with questions and try and answer them and not not have me sort of set a set a task. The other reason was rather more prosaic, and that is that we only get one hour with them. So unfortunately, as a matter of expediency, we have to Basically, say what we want them to to find out to then be able to sort of fulfil the requirements of the session in terms of curriculum, which is why the uh, the teachers are booking the visits and coming. Um, We try to give them as much freedom as possible within within that, but yeah, with only an hour, it is it is a bit of a challenge if you try to do something that's maybe a little bit more loose and a little less prescriptive. What are the prescriptive parts of the
0: session, and what are the more what are the points at which students get to make choices
1: i mean the big the big point where they get to make a choice is when they choose which animal they'd like to find out more about now one of the difficulties is obviously when you do the plenary and everyone feeds back there is a danger if you do it like this that all the children will pick the same animal it gets a bit boring if they're all sort of saying it's a pond snail and it's got a shell on its back to protect it you know they, they there's a, There's a limited number of things that they can that they can find out um, what usually happens is there'll be one or two animals that a couple of the groups would the pigs and then a couple of the groups might have got something slightly different i don't I personally don't like to sort of put my uh interpretation of what's exciting and what's interesting and basically force it on them um but then on the other hand, there is this sort of thing that at the end, as a, as a whole class, they'll so get the most out of it if, they, if they've got different animals. But then when they take it back and try to find out more about it, we set them questions, but the discussion is very much in, in the group. We had a problem that we give them prompt sheets because some, some children find it really hard to, to sort of look at something and, and try and work out more about it sometimes we've done it without the prompt sheets and it's almost better because they don't necessarily get the right answer until you talk to them and get them to think about things in a different way but they come up what they're coming up with is much more their, their own ideas because as soon as you give them that sheet they're just like oh well, I'll just copy down what's on the sheet because that's often how teaching uh, teaching can happen in the classroom uh, so in that portion of the session, what what's
0: the range of resources that they use? They don't just have the the animal in a little container in front of them at that point. Uh,
1: no, they got a an ID book and they've got whiteboards and pens so they can make notes. Um, they always, without fail, the child who wrote the notes isn't the one who does the reading, and the one who does the reading can't read the notes that the other child's written but then then that's uh that's that's life. Um, uh they've also got prompt sheets and they got extra information. Now some of that stuff we give to them as they're going along. And sometimes I don't give them that stuff if they're making if they're making good observations, and they don't need that little push because I'd much rather that, that it all came from them.
0: In that portion of the session you're circulating around and you kind of Gage which groups need the extra prompting?
1: Yeah, I usually talk to them and find out what they're thinking about. If any of them aren't concentrating, obviously we give them uh, we give them a little bit of uh, impetus to uh, to make concentrate on what they're supposed to be doing. We might also ask them questions if they're kind of going off on a complete tangent, but essentially we're trying to get get them to find out stuff for themselves at that point, so I'm more sort of just listening to to what they're doing and preparing for the next bit, because with the hour the hour session time, it's it's quite sort of, you have to really be on it with the timing to get through it all.
0: And are you guys at the ponds at this point? Where do you do this um, this section?
1: We've got a couple of kind of classroom areas. So one of them is a uh, roundhouse, uh, which is made from Wattle and Um The other area, which I tend to prefer, is we have an outdoor canopy space, which has a television and a camera attached to it so we can put things up onto a television screen uh, for the whole class to see. And it's got benches. And And because it's outside, you still feel like you're getting that outside element.
0: Why do you think that session is so popular with schools? It makes up like quite a high percentage of the bookings at the centre, is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it used to be as high as sort of 85, 90%. It used to be the case that we'd be doing four pond tipping sessions a day, every day throughout the summer. And yeah, you just never wanted to see a pond again by the time the end of school term uh, rolled around. Um, I think the reason the teachers love it is it fits so well into the curriculum um, with habitats and adaptations. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just perfect because it's you're catching creatures that have these obvious adaptations to a particular habitat. And, um, yeah, it just brings its life so perfectly for the, the children. I think the other thing they love about it is it has that very definite practical aspect to of it. Of you get in there, and you stick it in the pod, you find things for yourself. And children just absolutely love it. It's absolutely brilliant. It is just the best experience when you're a child.
0: You get that, the using equipment and there's a, a creature there and there's water. It's all the highlights.
1: All the best stuff.
0: So what would you say is your favourite session to run at the Wetland Centre? Your feet, schools, families, anything?
1: So my favourite thing, and I'm gutted that I haven't been doing it this year with the pandemic, Uh, we do night safaris. So we get a group of children... Uh, I think it's 20, 20 children as our capacity usually and there, it's uh, for families so they all come to the centre in the evening after we've closed and we take them around the centre at night and there's a variety of activities we do so we do a den building session on it and kids love den building a lot of the children who come for these night safaris are often, you know, they already know how to build a den so they're kind of They kind of know that 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 bit's easy. But then after they've done the den building, we take them on a bat walk. And I think for me, it is one of the most magical experiences. And seeing the looks on the children's faces, because they kind of go through this this journey. Some of them will be scared of bats. And the parents have decided to force them to come along, uh, either to confront their fears or because the parents like bats and are interested in wildlife as well. Which is one of the hallmarks of a great family activity, actually. The parents are also having a great time or they're uh, accompanying adults as well. It's not just parents. It can be a whole range of different people bringing the children. They're kind of learning together. And really, that is the essence of, of, of family learning rather than it's just about the kids, which um, some family activities can be they they start off and we give them the bat detectors, we explain to them how they work and they start off and they're just sort of waving them around, pointing them at the floor. They don't usually find anything to begin with. Although some years we, we've literally just found, found bats as soon as we stepped outside the building. Um, but then they start hearing the bats on the bat detector and, you know, the the, the silence sort of falls down at that point. It's like, wow, we actually found a bat, I can't believe it. I mean, I think some children don't even realise that you you get bats in this country. And then with a little bit of practice, we can show them how to spot the bats as well. And it's just the experience of walking around the centre in the dark because it's not something that you would normally get to experience um because we're open during daylight hours. So it's it's just completely different to what they're used to. And there's all sorts of unexpected things you can come across. I mean, um I usually on a clear night will stop when we get to there's a sort of big bit of decking which looks out over a couple of our water bodies and it's got quite a big skies. So I'll stop and I'll show the children stars and the planets because my other uh, great passion is astronomy and just pointing to a bright patch of light in the sky a bright point of light in the sky and saying so that over there's jupiter and the children just like wow how do you know that i just don't know how to answer at that point um i mean the truth you know the truth is that i've got an app that tells me is uh, one answer um but you know i, I know where it is because i've been watching it in the sky for sort of months on end and it it kind of opens the children's minds to just how much is out there. You know, there's these animals flying around that they never knew were there. There's this stuff up in space that, you know, they they maybe looked at it but didn't really think about it. And then there's the unexpected things, like we were taking a school group around on a night safari and we were walking through one of our sort of wooded areas and as we were walking along, I put my foot down. I was treading quite carefully, thankfully, and I felt a ball underneath my foot. So I took my foot away and looked down, and there was this weird ball on the floor. So I poked with my foot. I was like, what on earth is this ball doing here? Of course, it uncurled. It was a hedgehog. <laughs> yes, I was there on that walk. That was, that was quite a moment. When well, yeah, I nearly shot the hedgehog, special. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's it's a it's a wonderful experience, and I'm always trying to find more ways in which we can get more children the opportunity to do it. Because unfortunately, where we have to charge quite a lot for it, a relatively large amount for it, it tends to be more affluent families that get to do it. Not always. We do get um, well, some people who've never been to the centre before who are just like, I just want to give my child this experience one of the most rewarding ones we did was we ran a competition uh, about seven or eight years ago. And it was, if I remember rightly, it was part of one of our free school visit schemes. And basically one of the schools won the chance to come to the centre for one of these night safaris. And it it was just wonderful because these kids, you know, I think they went to quite an urban school. They had never seen anything like the Wetland Centre before. Just the idea of you can walk around this place in the dark and you're not going to get stabbed, I think, was mind-blowing for them. But just the looks on their faces, and just, they they were just in sheer wonder the whole way around. I seem to remember a lot of the girls were wearing um, bangles, which kept clacking around. So we'd be walking along, and you'd hear the bangles on the bat detector. They're like, oh, bat, bat, bat! And I was like, no, 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 that's your jewellery again. I'm really sorry. <laughs> So we end with a campfire. We toast marshmallows over the campfire. Um, I've spent years trying to find a reliable supply of vegan marshmallows to make sure everybody gets a marshmallow. Um, and I just, I just found the perfect place. And then lockdown happens, which was was really annoying. But hopefully, we'll still be able to get those vegan marshmallows for the uh, for when we're able to start them up again. But yeah, walking around at night is. I mean, it's, it's hugely enjoyable. It's something I do in my, uh, my own time as well. It sort of sounds a bit weird, but I spend more time in Bushy Park, which is literally literally just around the corner from us at night than I do during the day. So, yeah, I'm often found lurking in places at night because yeah, there's something sort of mysterious and, I don't know, just exploring this unknown world that you're not quite part of. Because humans are very much diurnal animals, and there's there's that frisson of danger, and I don't know what's around the corner. You never know what you're going to find. Is it going to be a wolf, or at the Wetland Centre more likely, uh, more likely the grounds uh, the grounds manager? But uh... <laughs>
0: of all the programs that are offered at the London Wetland Centre, which do you feel is the most effective program or experience? In terms of generating pro environmental attitudes or behaviors?
1: That's an interesting one. So, I think it's something that at the moment we really need to work on. We have recognized it. So, there's been a big movement towards increasing nature connectedness um, in environmental education. And I think a lot of us kind of kind of trying to rack our our brains about, you know, how do we do it properly? We we wring our hands about, you know, they're pond dipping, but are they learning? Are they actually getting closer to nature? And I think one of the problems is that often with a place like the Wetland Centre, where it's a visitor attraction as well as as a nature reserve, people come there for a day out and they've often got this sort of mindset of, you know, we come out for fun. So it's almost like the nature is is secondary to a lot of our visitors. Not all of them. There are some who they just absolutely love the natural world. They love the fact that they've got this place that's local to them where they can come. Parents or the uh, the adults are happy to be able to encourage their children's love of nature and they can see just how beneficial it is. So, that, but it's how we take the children who. I always put it as they're children who want to scream at nature and hit it with a stick. How you take them (laughs) from being like that to then wanting to protect the natural world and feel passionately for environmental causes, which is where this nature connectedness comes in. Because there's been this big movement towards getting children out, doing stuff in nature. But we need to move beyond that to getting them to experience nature at a much more emotional level. So like we do a mini beast hunt where the kids get big nets, uh, sweet nets, and they go and sweep through the long grass. They do this in the summer. And then they find creatures and we identify them, which is great. But they, and they love sweeping the nets through the long grass. But, you know, I've had children getting so excited. Oh, I have had a spider. They're literally chucking uh, this pot with a spider in at me and it's sort of like that's not going to do the spider any good so it's more thinking about how we change our attitude to how we run the activity to get them to think i'm going to sweep through this net i'm going to be careful because i don't want to harm this habitat and then caring for the animals they find so basically getting them to connect on a more sort of empathic level uh, with the natural world which is something that's after lockdowns and the pandemic, I think um, is gonna be quite a big movement with our programmes and with with other nature programs. And getting them to notice little things as well, because I think people people have become aware of just how important nature is for mental health and physical well being and and all these kinds of things. But there was also this problem when restrictions were eased back in the summer you know we had heathlands down in surrey very local to us on fire because people basically went out with these disposable barbecues because they're allowed out for a barbecue just set these precious nature reserves on fire and a lot of people were angry and a lot of people were sort of posting up on twitter and stuff about all these people are so awful this is why humans are awful we miss the point that if you don't get to think empathically about where they're coming from, you can't actually help them sort of grow and, and learn and all the stuff stuff like that. So while they weren't thinking about what they were doing, we're also not thinking about where they're coming from. So I think some of our most successful programmes at starting to try and do this is when we've used more of the sort of forest school approaches and more of the sort of uh, wild play uh, sort of approaches to uh, to nature learning. So, getting the children to, for example, giving each child a little toy animal and saying you've got to build a, a habitat for this animal. So it's like it's like an avatar for them to sort of think about. Well, what do these animals need? And it it helps them grow those sort of skills in. How do you protect something? How do you nurture something? And for my mind, this this is basically the essential for tackling the environmental problems that the world's in because the universe is entirely indifferent to us. And if we destroy the natural world, basically the only thing that it matters to is us. So we have to connect with people and we have to get people to connect with the planet in order to be able to save it rather than a lot of the negativity that you get, unfortunately, in the environmental movement, you, you hear it a lot, people saying, people are awful, people are evil, people are wrong, I wish people were extinct. Well, there's not much, that the only meaning that we have is what we create for ourselves. So with these more
0: um, wild play, forest school style activities, what, um, what sets them apart from the other activities that you guys do?
1: I think it's because they're much more they're much more free flow and they're less about sort of nature in terms of categorizing and this very sort of scientific way of looking at the natural world because that is an important way of looking at it and we'll always do those sorts of activities but I think it's because it's much more about exploring and learning and working together in a team as well, is, is, is often an aspect of, of these sessions. Because we'll do some of the sort of bushcraft stuff like uh, den building as well. And it gives children an opportunity to kind of push boundaries, to do things that are slightly more risky. And, yeah, to kind of express themselves, use their imaginations a little bit more.
0: It's interesting that you brought up that it's the activities that you feel are more effective at producing these pro-environmental kind of attitudes, behaviors, perspectives on nature are, are not the, um, maybe they're not the like science curriculum linked ones.
1: Yeah. Cause I think there is this, there has a lot, lot of time been this emphasis on, um, to teach children about nature, they have to be able to identify things and, you know, the more extreme end, no Latin names and all this sort of thing. But, you can actually teach that to yourself, basically. What's more important is giving them the opportunity to get closer to nature and helping them to feel and to understand what they're feeling and, and to express it. And it's through building those sorts of connections that will then lead children to grow up, to want to protect the natural world, to nurture it. Whether that's... They never go beyond just enjoying being in nature and noticing the colors of the trees. they don't care what sort of tree it is, you know they just they just like them and feel a connection to them, or whether they go on to be scientists, to be environmentalists, to be conservationists, and that sort of thing. But they're much more likely to want to actually protect the natural world if they form that connection, particularly when they're young,
0: yeah. And the, the London Wetland Centre is such a fabulous place to do it because there is such diversity of habitat and in it's so close to central London as well is, is uh, so amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was, um, it was basically Peter Scott's great vision was that all our nature reserves at WWT are out in sort of these beautiful wild spaces but he wanted to bring nature to where people were because he realised that you need to basically get people interested um, in nature, which is why the London site was chosen, because he knew it was um, in an urban setting.
0: If you want to find out more about the fabulous range of school and public programs at the London Wetlands Centre, um, check those out in the show notes. But Paul, thank you very much for coming on the show again.
1: Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure.
0: As always, full show notes can be found at our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. If you've got any questions or comments, uh, send them in to us at knowingnaturepodcastgmail.com. At and you can also follow us on Twitter at knpodcast. Thanks very much for listening.